There is an evil that exists in our country and exists in some churches as well. But we must deal with evil in the church unless evil takes over the church. The Bible is clear in our passage today that God hates evil and so should the church hate evil as well. And today, church, I want to talk about a very difficult topic. Um, Wherever you are in your homes, wherever you're watching, I would ask that you would pause for a moment and pray with me. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We pray, God, as we talk about difficult topics and especially evil in our country, God, that you would bless our time together, that your Holy Spirit would be with us. Father, that we will feel connected right now in this moment as we humble ourselves under your mighty word. We pray that you would do what you do best, and that is transform our hearts so that we look more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody at home said amen. Everybody on Facebook, hit that thumbs up and hit that heart so that I know that you're with us. Make sure that you say hello to somebody on Facebook. We are going to dive into the word at this time. Let me give you a history lesson on this particular evil that has existed in this country and in some very real ways in the church. This young man was kidnapped, brutally murdered, and left floating in a river by a group of men. Do you know who he is? His name is Emmett Till. Why did this happen? Because a white woman accused Till of making advances towards her. Ten years before, his dad was accused of raping two white women while serving our country in Italy during World War II. His sentence for this accusation, death. Both father and son met the same fate for essentially the same accusation. The Central Park Five is the name given to a group of black boys who in April of 1989 were wrongly arrested and ultimately convicted in the rape jogger Patricia Miller in Central Park. Trayvon Martin, a 17-year-old African-American, was walking back from a convenience store in Sanford, Florida, wearing a hoodie and and carrying Skittles and iced tea. Moments later, he was fatally shot by a neighborhood watchman. Then there's the slaughter of of the jogger Ahmaud Aubrey on February 23rd, 2020 in Brunswick, Georgia. And then you have Breonna Taylor, who was shot and killed by police officers after entering her home. She was a first responder as she worked as an EMT in hopes of becoming a nurse, but her life was cut short. Black people continue to die senseless deaths because of white supremacy is allowed to live. Let me tell you what white supremacy is not. It is not white people. White supremacy is the ideology that white lives are more valuable and important than other lives, and especially black people. Being white is not a crime. Here are some of the issues that evidence that black lives don't matter, like the Flint water crisis, mass incarceration, disparities in housing and health care, and yes, police brutality. Has not COVID-19 exposed the health care disparities? Why do I bring this up? Because as a minister in Gary, Indiana, I must remind you that yes, black lives do matter. 
moreover and more deeply as a minister of the gospel. Now, I must remind you of a quote from Dr. Edmund. Before we go any further, I want to clear up a common misconception about Black Lives Matter sentiment. Black Lives Matter does not mean Black Lives Matter only. It means Black Lives Matter too. It, it's a contextualized statement like saying children lives matter, that doesn't mean adult lives don't matter. What does any of this have to do with my Christianity, you ask? Well, I'm glad that you asked. You and I cannot be good Christians leaning in on this unless we care, engage, and hate the belittling, oppressing, and injustice done to the powerless in the voiceless. Yes, I said it. Church, you and I are called as believers in Jesus Christ to have a heart for those who are belittled, oppressed, and experiencing injustice and they have no power and they have no voice, God has called us to be that voice for them. What do you mean? Well, our text today tells us to hate what is evil and love what is good. And I will chop that up in a minute. But this verse comes after 11 chapters of gospel teaching. Yes, Bethel Gary, we have been walking through the book of Romans and this verse that tells us to hate what is evil and love what is good comes after 11 chapters of gospel teaching. It comes after the understanding that Christ has saved us from our sins. Here's what the verse says, when God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just in what? The justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Yes, Jesus has rescued us. Jesus has came for us. Jesus has died on our behalf, washed away our sins, and he has made peace between us in God. This is the beauty of the gospel. It comes after knowing we have peace with God through Jesus. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Does anybody love scripture? I love the truth and the beauty of scripture, but hey, it gets better. It comes after knowing that sin no longer has power over us. That's good news. I don't know about you, but I get excited and I want to shout a little bit that sin no longer has power over this chocolate brother. God has freed me from the power of sin. Let me put it to you the way that the Bible puts it. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Romans 5.1. It comes after, after knowing that sin no longer has power over us. For sin will, no, will, will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. It comes after knowing we have been filled with the Spirit. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And all of that is great news. It is good news. It is something that we treasure. And what comes after knowing and believing that? What comes after believing the gospel? What, what comes after putting our faith in Jesus? Friends, works. Good works. Faith without works are dead. 
We are to care about one another because of the gospel. We are to live differently because of the gospel. We ought to do good works because of the gospel. The gospel causes something to happen. Because after salvation, every Christian should experience a changed heart. And that is exactly where Paul takes us. The tangible evidence that the gospel is in our hearts is that we will have a heart for other people. Part of the evidence that the gospel is down in my heart is that it will evidence itself in the way that I treat and respond to people. And one of the biggest evidence of a heart change and a person that believes the gospel is that they hate evil. We hate unjust systems. We hate evil and we love good and we mourn with those who mourn. Here's the verse, let love be genuine and harbor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. What is evil and what is good? If we are going to hate evil and love good, we need to know what is evil and what is good. Like we got to be able to define that. We got to know what that is because everybody got a definition on what is good and what is evil. Our society has many definitions on what is evil and what is good. Culture is forever changing on, on, on what's to be considered good and what's to be considered bad. One moment this is bad, next moment it's not. One moment this is good, next moment it is not. You go back 50 years, things that were considered bad in our society are not considered bad now. It's considered acceptable. But who gets to be the judge and ruler on what is good and what is bad? What makes good good? And what makes evil evil? Here's the answer. God. God is good. I wish I had the church right now that I say amen right now. God is good. God is the essence of good. And some of you can testify right now that God is good. When we understand good, we can understand evil. Therefore, we must understand God if we're going to understand good and evil. Evil is what God is not. Evil is what God is not about. It is not his will. Like what makes dark, dark, light. If there was not light, then we would have, we, we would know what dark is. We wouldn't know what dark is without the contrast of light. It would just be dark. But the light contrasts the dark and helps us to understand there is a such thing as dark. And if we will understand evil or what evil is, we must understand God. Look at Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God is. And then he says what is good and acceptable and perfect. So hear me on this church. If you are going to understand the difference between good and evil, you must renew your mind. You must study the Word of God. You must come acquainted with Jesus. 
This verse right here tells us that we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind that we may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Everything about the will of God, everything that God does is good. It is, it, 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 there's nothing bad in him. There, there's no deceitfulness in him. There's no lying in him. There's no darkness in him. And so when we want to understand what good is, we got to understand who God is. And if we're going to understand who God is, we got to study the word. This is why Bible study is important. This is why you ought to show up on Wednesdays when we go live and we do Bible study. You say, why, Pastor? So that you can be able to discern what is good and what is evil. And a lot of us, we can't discern good from evil because we don't know God. And when you don't know God, you don't know good. And when you don't know good, you can mistake an evil for good because you don't know any better. But if you get in God's Word, you can begin to understand the difference between good and evil. And when you do understand evil and your mind is transformed, the Bible says, hate what is evil. Now, some of y'all, y'all been itching your whole life to hate something. The Bible finally gives you an opportunity to hate something. Here it is. You can hate it all you want. The Bible says you can go full out, no holds back, no restriction. Come on, y'all know. Some of y'all been wanting to punch something. Y'all been wanting to hit something. The Bible says, here it is, hate what is evil. That's right. God says, I want you, I want you to hate it. I don't want you to like it. I don't want you to kick it with it. I don't want you to be good with it. I want you to hate what is evil. He said, at harbor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Notice Paul's verb. At harbor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. What are you saying to us, Paul? Preach to us, Paul. His words are very strong. Watch this. At harbor is a good translation or loath. Be disgusted with. Man, that's strong language right there. Be disgusted with evil. In other words, when you see evil, it ought to give you the stank face. You ought to just look at evil and say, mm, mm, mm. That's what he's saying. Be disgusted by it. In other words, God doesn't just want us to, to not do evil. He doesn't just want us to avoid evil. He doesn't just want us to not be a part of it. God wants us to hate evil so much we confront evil. God wants us to hate evil so much that we confront evil. He wants us to hate it, that our entire being is consumed with the same hate he has when he sees evil. See, this is exactly the evidence of a changed Christian life. Those who were once evil now hate evil. They don't just avoid evil. They don't just ignore evil. They actually hate evil and they confront evil. Or another way I can say it is those who are in Christ now hate what Christ hates. You ever prayed a prayer like that? God, help me to hate what you hate. God, help me to love what you love. Or, or is all of your prayers about your agenda and what you like. When the last time you prayed, God, help me to hate the things that you hate. Help me to at harbor the things that you at harbor. One thing Christ hates is, 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 is racism in the church. Ethnocentrism. God hates it. Jesus still sees it and Jesus still hates it. Let me give you an example of Jesus. See, everybody think that Jesus is like this cute dude with this long pressed hair. That's not the Jesus that I see in the Bible. Jesus was a G when he had to be a G. Jesus would stand up and take care of evil. Watch this. You don't believe me. In Mark chapter 11, verse 15 through 19, y'all, it is about to go down. 
It's about to go down. Jesus is about to send the temple up. Jesus is about to go in the temple, and he's about to flip that joint upside down. Jesus is about to go in there, and he's about to show them what's happening. Watch how Jesus confronts evil. Watch how Jesus responds to evil. We think that Jesus always come, always sue, maybe said a little parable, sung a little song. But right here in this verse, we see the passion of of our Lord against evil right here in this verse. Jesus is going to show us how deep his hate is for evil. Watch it now. Jesus returns to the temple to cleanse, to cleanse it the day after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This is when he's just came through, the t- through Jerusalem on the donkey. They've been saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And here it is. And part of and part of the corrupt situation he finds involves race-based, systemized injustice. This is what he finds when he goes to the, sense, uh, to the temple, a race-based, systemized injustice. While the religious leaders protected the peace of the inner courts where Jews pray, you got to understand that the Jews had the inner courts of the temple and then the Gentiles had the outer court of the temple. The Gentiles are all those who are not of, uh, of Jewish descent. And so the, the, the leaders of the temple protected and made sure that, 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 that the Jewish part of the temple was clean. They, they looked out for their ethnic group. They looked out for those who looked like them. They wanted to make sure that the Jewish people's stuff was good. Now watch this. Jewish leaders make sure that the Jewish people, where they prayed and worshiped, was good. But on the other hand, the Gentile space, they did whatever they wanted to do with it. It was noisy. It was smelly. And the injustice was easy to discover. Jesus walks into the temple. He sees this kind of ethnocentricity going on. And what does he do? He confronts it. Jesus is in, in, in infuriated by this. He's, he's angry by it. The Jews make sure their part of the temple is clean, well-managed, but the Gentile portions, they like, whatever, we don't care. They just Gentiles. They don't matter. Can you feel it? Can you see it in the text? Can you see the injustice here? We're going to make sure that our part is peaceful and clean and well kept together, but we're going to treat the Gentiles' part like it's nothing. And when they do that to their portion of the temple, what they're communicating is you don't matter to us and you don't matter to God, and Jesus has an issue with it. Why? Because everything about the temple was intended to point to the coming of Christ. And Jesus knows that ethnocentrism is a complete misrepresentation of the saving purpose of God who would make Christ to be the light to the nations. I need to be clear here that Jesus came to save all people. This is part of his issue here is that the way that the Jewish people are treating the temple does not express, does not reflect God's heart for the nations. And in his zeal, Jesus completely dismantles the livestock exchange, refuses to let anybody pass through, and so restores the courts of the Gentiles to pray. Jesus clears out everything. He clears out the injustice. He gets rid of the racism. He removes it out of the temple. That has no place in the house of God. 
This kind of racism, this kind of other people don't matter, this kind of belittling, oppressing does not belong in the temple. And Jesus clears the entire place because of it. And friends, I believe that Jesus is still in the business of clearing evil out of the church. Y'all go out into the world with that, but you don't come into the house of God. You don't come into the church with it. And then after he clears it out, I love what he does. He clears out the temple. He cleanses the injustice. And then after that, he exposits a sermon addressing the heart of the issue with the people. Oh, this is good. Because Jesus uses his podium to address their racism. He uses preaching to address the hearts of the people. And he does it by preaching Isaiah 56, 7. He says, is it not written, my house should be called a house of prayer for who? For all nations. Jesus is like, is this not supposed to be a house of prayer for everyone? That the house of God should be the one place that brothers and sisters should be able to find equality and not opposition against them in regards to the way that God made them. Jesus wants to express and preach to the church that, that, that my church ought to be a place for all people. And it's sad that here in America, when we look on our history, what we see is this divide between black and white people. Where there was segregation in white churches where that should have never happened. And how do you think Jesus felt? He felt the same way he felt in the book of Mark, that Jesus was upset about it because Jesus does not like it. And so Jesus cleanses out the temple. But when Jesus cleanses out the temple, when Jesus cleans out these temples, because if Jesus didn't want racism in temples built by human hands, how much more does Jesus not want racism in these temples? How much does Jesus not want cultural superiority in these temples? But when Jesus cleanses out our temples, no, Jesus doesn't just leave us neutral. No, that's not what he does. Jesus doesn't cleanse us out so that we can remain neutral. But Jesus cleanses us out so that he can fill us with his goodness. Because the verse doesn't just say hate what is evil. It says love what is good, friends. Do you hear me this afternoon that Jesus wants us to love what is good? It says hold fast to what is good. It literally means embrace it. It means love it. The word is used for sexual union. In 1 Corinthians 6.16 um, um, is, is the way that Paul uses sexual union. It's the same way he's trying to use hold fast, the same way he uses it in 1 Corinthians 16 when he's talking about sexual union. So we get the closeness, the, the oneness that God wants with his people and goodness, right? And by the way, the essence of goodness is Jesus, don't just, in other words, don't just choose good, embrace good. Okay, y'all not with me. I love good. Did that help you? Okay, that didn't help you. Uh, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me try this. Uh, 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 make good your wife. Marry good. Don't, don't, don't hide good. Don't tell good marriage is no big deal. It's only a title. No, don't play good like that. Paul is saying, don't play good so you can have evil too. Evil shouldn't be your side chick, right? God, God is saying, I want you to be devoted to good. Moreover, Paul is like, don't just marry good, love good. 
Oh, that's good right there. Don't just marry good, but love good, because you know you can marry something that you do not love. There's a lot of people that get married to people that they don't love, that they don't care about. There's a lot of motives behind why they marry folks. My wife at times will ask me, do you love me? Now watch this. After I've done something good for her, she would ask, why did you do it? She is trying to see if my hands are in union with my heart. And what God wants from us is for goodness and the good that we do to be at union with our heart. That God just don't want us to just do good just to do good. God wants us to do good because we are good through Jesus. Are you with me this afternoon? It's a good question that my wife asks me. It's a good question if we are being honest, because you and I can alter our behavior easy, but our hearts not so much. The head can observe and then do, but the heart is harder. Listen, you can be wrestling with a math, math equation on your way to church, and you can get yourself together easy before you walk through the doors. Before you get in the building, you can get yourself together. You can get, you can get yourself looking right. But if you've been wrestling with your spouse, Come on, somebody. If you've been wrestling with your spouse on the way to church, boy, it's a whole different ball game to try to get yourself together and put on that face and smile. Because why? Because that's a hard issue. The head issue and the heart issue are two different things. I learned this from the Disney movie, movie Frozen. Y'all remember Elsa and Anna? Parents had to rush their daughter to the rock trolls after an injury to the head. They said something, those trolls said something. The heart is not so easily changed, but the head can be persuaded. We can get our behavior right while never having our hearts right. Let me say it again, make sure that you heard me. I like the way that it sounds, I'll play it back for you. We can get our heads right while never having our hearts right. And God doesn't just want your behavior, he wants your heart. And if you think God wants your behavior, you'll think that you don't need Jesus. But look at what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Okay, cool. I won't do that. That's easy. I'll make sure that I don't go in any rooms with women alone. I'll make sure that I don't go in any room with men alone. And, and, and I'll stay away from adultery. But look, Jesus takes it a little bit deeper. He says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus takes it to a heart issue. I don't just want your behavior. I want your heart. And I need to pause here because... Our good God died not so we could just do good, but so that we can be good. Yeah, friends, that's the beauty of Christianity, that God didn't just save you to change your behavior, but God came to change your very being. This is the beauty of Christianity. That God gets down on the inside and he transforms us from the inside out so that, so, that, so, so, so that we don't have to be hypocrites, nor that we can genuinely love and genuinely be that which God has called us to be, which is what we see in the first half of the verse, let love be genuine. But apart from Jesus working power in our lives, we can't be good because we are no good and all of us ain't no good if we are honest. The things that goes on in his heart and mind is not good. Jesus has to clean, cleanse out the temple. The issue here is we can do a lot of good things, noble things, and not love good. 
We can do good because it makes us look good. But this verse is not calling for you to date good when good is good for you. Don't treat good like a side chick. Don't shoot your shot at good when good is looking good to you. No, commit to good. Marry good. Have and hold unto death. Do you part your love for good? Love good no matter what. But how do we love good? We have to keep looking at Jesus. Jesus is goodness personified. God has made good known objectively and historically in Jesus Christ in Scripture. If you want to know what good is, you got to look to Jesus. You got to set your eyes on Jesus. We love good by paying the price to do good. Good is going to cost you. Being good will cost you in this world. We will quickly discover if we love good, when justice costs us something, and we're willing to pay the price, that's going to be evidence that you love good. You see, you don't really know if you love good until it costs you something. This is why the Bible says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. If you got any doubt that Jesus loves you, you ain't got to look at the square foot of your home. You ain't got to look at what car you're driving. All you got to do is take your eyes and look up at Calvary and see him paying and dying for your sins. And that is evidence that Jesus loves you. You want to know if you love good, has it ever cost you anything? Until people hate you for good. It's easy to say you love people until it costs you to love people. Everybody say they love everybody until it costs you to love people. It's easy to say you love all people until it's time to love all people. You see, we knew Jesus loved good and was good because one day good cost him something. Being good cost Jesus his reputation. Going over to talk to the woman at the well cost him something. He became friends with sinners. Cost him something. That's right. The elite folks would talk about him. The Pharisees and the Sadducees would talk about him. It cost Jesus to love people. Jesus loving people caused him to get tossed out of the inner crowd. Jesus loving people uh, got him cast out of places that he was well qualified to be in. Jesus being good cost him everything. He let women work in his ministry and he let them in his theological classrooms and it cost him. He touched the unclean and it cost him. Jesus did a lot of good, but it cost him. And Jesus had rather die than to side with evil, no matter what evil tried to offer him. You see, evil is going to offer you something in exchange for good, whether it's fame or money or sex or success, or on the other hand, religion or false righteousness. And your hate for evil will be known that day. Friends, being good is going to cost you something. Going up against evil is going to cost you something. I'm so tired of this soft cushioning Christianity that tells us that if you walk with Jesus, everything is going to be all right. But I wish I had some people who knew 
that loving Jesus and walking with Jesus and thinking like Jesus and responding like Jesus has cost you something that you lost some friends and that you lost some relationships and you had some lonely nights and you have to cry yourself to sleep because you because you decided to be obedient to God then instead of trying to fit in with the world because loving Jesus is going to cost you something friends but I know that I got a church out there that knows that although when you sacrifice and when you lay down your life to love people and to love Jesus that he's clear he stays closer than a brother that that that, that God has comfort you some of you call him your tear catcher you call him your pillow because there's some things that you had to endure some things that you had to go through in order to uphold what was good you had to go through something it cost you something you got some stripes on your back you got some testimonies that you can testify about but deep down in the inside you found out that when you stood up in the face of evil for Jesus you found out just how good Jesus was Jesus kept you together he held you together Jesus hate for evil was clearly seen on Calvary being good loving good will cost you something do you remember the freedom riders they fought to end racial segregation in the southern U.S. public transit in 1961 their goal was to desegregate the interstate transportation, including highways, bus stops, and train terminals. Do you know what happened to some of them? Michael, Andrew, James, you know what happened to them? They were killed by the Ku Klux Klan lynch, the lynch mob near Mississippi. And you know what they did? Those who were walking with them and fighting with them, they kept fighting. The Freedom Riders were not dissuaded and they continued to come into Alabama and Mississippi. Why? Because they loved good and they hated evil. And when we love good, we can have peace when evil or injustice is not dealt with. No justice, no peace. We love good by confronting evil. Those who say they love good will confront evil when they see it. They confront it in themselves and in others. Let me start with me first. There should be the, the most hate for sin that I should have is the, is, is, is the hate for my own sin. There's no sin that I should hate more than Dexter Harris. In fact, I, can truly, I can't truly hate anyone else's sin until I hate my own sin. How you going to hate somebody else's sin and you, don't, and, and you don't hate your own sin? How you going to hate injustice and you too are pushing injustice? You got to start with yourself first. But we are not just called to hate our sin. We are called to hate other people's sin and systemic sin. We need to hate it enough to confront it. No, you and I need to hold each other accountable. Jesus' death on the cross did not open up an opportunity for us to wild out it is not a cross that speaks to injustice or supports injustice. No, it is a cross that when we look at it, we understand how much God actually hates what is evil. If a brother is out of pocket, you need to confront him. This is what Paul did. Watch it. Peter got out of line. Yes, Peter, who walked with Jesus, who cut off the ear of the soldier. Peter, Peter, y'all know Peter. Peter trash talking Peter. Peter that'll go there with you, Peter. Paul gets up in his face and confronts him in Galatians. It says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. 
For before a certain man came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Do you see it? His, his, his Jewish boys come, people that look like him, act like him, got the same beliefs that he has, well, used to have, come. And what does Peter do? Peter walks away from the Gentiles. He allows racism to separate him. He allows prejudiceness to, to separate him. And Paul sees this. And what does Paul do? He says that, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like a Jew? Paul says, you know good and well that the gospel has reconciled us, Peter. You know good and well, well that, that, that in the gospel we find that white brothers and black brothers and yellow brothers and blue brothers and purple brothers and green sisters and yellow sisters are all the same in Jesus Christ, that, that, that we were all saved by the same gospel. And now that people who look like you didn't show up, you're going to act like you're better than Gentiles. And Peter, I got a problem with that, and you need to repent because it is not in step with the gospel. Friends, when we love good, we confront evil. We don't allow it to continue to fester among us. Here we have some racism going on. We have some Jewish supremacy going on. Jewish superiority. Peter is treating the Gentiles like they don't matter, and Paul deals with it. So here's my question to you, church. If you hate what is evil and you love what is good, where are your tears when you see injustice? If the church is supposed to hate what is evil and cling to what is good, how in the world can racial hatred and disobedience go unrepented and unchecked in white evangelical churches? What is crazier is in some cases, racism is even more deeply entrenched in the church than in the world. Moreover, some churches can be, be more dangerous to people of color. What makes it even worse is many white churches have ignored the issue of race. How can you ignore something you are supposed to hate? Paul couldn't. The gospel wouldn't let him. And when we can't confront injustice, we will not weep for injustice. Because we don't hate it deep enough. Refusal to adjust racialized sin has undermined our capacity to fulfill our Romans 12, 15 calling to mourn with those who mourn. When we don't deal with evil, we become callous to evil. We are not called as God's people. We are called to check our, we are called to check our sin, but also to check the sins of others. We are to weep with each other. It should hurt us that our brothers and sisters are hurt or our sisters are hurt. Friends, where are your tears? I love what Dr. Edmund says. In the church, white suburban men are called to cry tears, but the black inner city women scared to death that, their, that her husband is going to be the next Eric Gardner, or that her teenage son is going to be the next Trayvon Martin or Tamir Rice. And if you are so entrenched in your so social political camp, 
that you can't shed some tears with Tanisha, something is deeply wrong. Because that's who the church is called to be. Friends, where are your tears, but also where are your feet? Simply put, stop talking and start walking. You can't love good and not hate evil. Paul puts these back to back because one requires the other. The Last Dance documentary taught us this concept. You know how we knew MJ loved winning because of his hatred for losing. He hated losing so much it fueled, it fueled his passion to win. Or we could say it the other way around. We could say we knew that MJ uh, hated losing because his deep love for winning. He hugged that trophy and cried after winning that first championship. Do you remember when he finally got over the Pistons? When he finally got through L.A., he, he, he hugged that trophy because in that he loved winning. You can't truly love anything until you hate something. You can't truly hate something unless you love something. You can't love the Cubs and the White Sox. It's impossible. You can't love the Packers and the Bears. You should love the Bears and not the Packers. You can't love iPhones and Android. You should love Android. Clearly, iPhone people are evil. I'm just messing around. You can't say you love Jewish people and love the Holocaust. You have to hate it. You can't say you love black people and love slavery. You can't say you love your wife or your husband and love cheating. Your love for them makes you hate cheating. You can't say you love black people and love white supremacy. Bethel Gary, we are a multi-ethnic church. We have come so far and it seems like we have so far to go. But I want to remind you, Jesus is still on the throne. And this is good news. Because evil can make all the moves it wants to make, but the king is still on the throne. I wish I had a church right now. And some weeks, I feel like the game is over. And evil has won the day. Yeah, y'all, some weeks I get tired of turning on the news and seeing another black body in the street. Yeah, sometimes I get tired and I want to throw in the towel, but I'm reminded that Jesus is still on the throne. You ought to say amen right now because, friends, that good, that's good news. That, that deep down in our souls, when all hell has broken loose and we don't know where we're going to go, we know deep down in our souls that there is a God who died on Calvary, that there is a God that lives and that there is a God who has all power in his hands. And we know deep down in our souls that Jesus is on the throne. And I'm reminded of this. I'm reminded of the importance of my Savior being on the throne. Do y'all mind if I preach the closing of this sermon? There was two men that walked into an art gallery one day, and one of them was a world-famous chess player. And, and they walked into the art gallery right as it was getting ready to close and the security guard tells them they must hurry and they hurry until they go to a picture two people playing chess called checkmate <laughs> and one keeps going mm, and the other continues mm, I wish I had a church right now looking at it and studying it and, and his friend turns and says hurry up and the friend says don't you see the painting he called he called checkmate but the game is not over because the king 
still has one more move. And the friend said, as long as the king has one more move, the game is not over. Friends, I came to tell you that the game is not over, that the king is still on the throne, that he's still high and lifted up, that he still has all power in his hands, that he still holds my future, that he still holds your future. And you ought to shout to God even when you can't see a way, even when the light is not shining through. You ought to praise God because he's able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that you may ever think. And so mama that's crying because you lost your baby, the injustice, know that the king is still on the throne. Daddy who's crying because you got a black boy and you're scared for him to go out into the street. I want to remind you that God is still on the throne in church, although we may not be where we want to be. And we're hoping for better days that black brothers and white brothers and Asian brothers will be able to come together and love one another. I got good news for you that Jesus is still on the throne and he still got a move to make. And one day the day is coming that he'll stop all hurt. He'll stop all pain. He'll stop all crying and he'll stop all injustice in that day. Injustice will no longer be in the church and it will no longer be in our hearts. But friends, in the meantime, in between time, I want to encourage you to keep fighting, to keep hating what is evil. Hannah Burridge, I want to thank you for continuing to write blogs on injustice. I want to thank you. Mike Osten, I want to thank you for posting about your own testimony, how God has transformed you in this area of racism and injustice. I want to thank you, brothers and sisters. I want to thank all of us at Bethel Gary who continue to strive and to come to the table, white brothers and black brothers. And, and I want to say a special thank you to the black church that, that, that continue to love in the face of injustice. And friends, I want to continue to encourage you that we must continue to fight that Christ has called us to, to reconcile and to love our brothers and sisters in the Lord as we stand for justice. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. And we thank you for your steadfast love. Continue to be with us. Continue to strengthen us. And continue to guide us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And before you go, one last thing that we are trying to, uh, we're shooting for uh, June 21st, opening date for our church. Um, and so you're going to be receiving phone calls. Please, church, Bethel Gary, can you please help me as your pastor? I'm asking that you would help us by responding uh, to those phone calls. We put a team together that's going to reach out to you and they're going to explain to you uh, what our procedures are going to be. We need to know who wants to come back to church, who doesn't. We do understand that some people are going to feel different. We don't want to uh, fight over this or look at our brothers and sisters. We're all going to be on different pages, but that's okay. Um, we're going to still have access to see our sermon uh, live um, from the Bethel Gary campus. Um, and so much more news coming, but, but would you please um, uh, let us know uh, when we call, uh, whether you're going to be returning or not. That's going to be extremely helpful. More information to come in the weeks to come. In the meantime, in between time, be blessed and God's grace to you.